Well, good morning, everybody. Today, we are going to be looking at family and what happens when there's a little breakdown in the family. Uh, this is week th number three of a series that we've entitled Help, where we are simply saying to everybody, it's okay uh, to not be okay. It's okay if you don't have it all perfect. Uh, and the last two weeks, we've looked at uh, uh, anxiety and we've looked at conflict. And uh, this upcoming week, uh, this Sunday, we'll be looking at fear. But today, we're going to be looking at this idea of family. What happens if your family isn't uh, picture perfect? What happens if there are challenges? And as you think about maybe your past or you look towards the future, uh, what if it doesn't look absolutely perfect? The sermon I'm going to preach to you today is going to be utterly unique for me personally. I don't know how many sermons I've preached in the last 25 years, certainly hundreds and hundreds, maybe a few thousand, I don't know. Uh, this one really stands quite apart and very different for me as we open up God's Word. So um, let me start by reading you a, a particular scripture, and maybe you've heard of somebody make a statement where they'll say something like, oh, there's a verse in the Bible, and sometimes people call it like this, that's my life verse. Have you ever heard of that before? Or maybe some other kind of description. What, what that person is saying is, there's a little bit of the Bible here, and this one is very special, very, very meaningful to me, and I'm kind of carrying this with me over my life. And so I want to read you the scripture. It's Isaiah 59, 21. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you will not depart from you, and my words that I've put in your mouth will always be on your lips, on the lips of your children, on the lips of their descendants from this time on, and forever, says the Lord. What a beautiful scripture. That is a life verse. Now, it doesn't belong to me necessarily, although I will claim ownership of it. That's my parents' life verse, my mom and dad. And they've had that scripture for many, many years. And then the uh, difficult thing is that verse is written on the gravestone of my father. He is buried on a beautiful little hill uh, outside of Galway in Ireland. He was just 58 years of age when he passed away very unexpectedly. That was about eight years ago. And so when I say to you that that little scripture there has meaning for me, it has deep, deep, deep meaning for me. I have probably shared hundreds or thousands of scriptures standing in this spot over the last few years, but this verse stands apart for me personally. My father grew up in poverty. He was one of five children. He grew up, particularly with his brothers, in quite a violent home, four boys and a girl. And my father was working from the age of nine. He would uh, sell bundles of wood, and he would plant uh, from seed and, and sell plants door to door. My father never finished school, and by the time he was 16, he was working on the uh, with his hands, he was working with tools in the security uh, industry. By the time he was a teenager, maybe 15 or 16, 17, my father took to drinking, and my father was an alcoholic. My mother was also one of five children. Um, I think she grew up in a home that was um, probably some violence in that home as well, and, and definitely a sense of emotional abuse. And I think you have two teenagers growing up in the outskirts of Dublin who wanted just to escape. They wanted to escape their home. They wanted to escape their family. Two broken teenagers, they met each other when they were 14 years of age and started going out with each other. And after a year or two, soon enough, my mom was pregnant. 
Of course, in the 1970s in Ireland, for an unwed mother to be pregnant is a very shameful thing. And so my mother was hidden. She was hidden in the house and not allowed to leave until towards the end of her pregnancy, she was sent to a nursing home. And when my big brother Paul was born, he came into the world healthy and happy to a teenage mother. The nuns who ran the nursing home came in to simply take him away, to just to take her son. And if it were not for her older sister, she would have just lost her son at the power of their say-so. And those ladies had a lot of power. Somehow, I don't really know if I know all the details of it, but these two dumb teenagers with a child, and if you can imagine the panic and the finding out and the chaos and the drama and the shouting and what have you done, somehow they mustered up enough courage to say, we're actually going to be together and we're going to take our son. And they did. And they got a little house on the outskirts of Dublin where my father continued to drink. And quickly enough, they had another baby. Hi. <laughs> my mother was still a teenager. She had a second child. My father's drinking reached the point where one day my mother looked him in the eye and she said, about as serious and as intense as it gets, if you ever touch another drop, you will never, ever see these two boys again. And unbelievably, he never did. He went cold turkey, and he never, ever drank again in his life. Now let me pause here for a second. What a mess, right? There's nobody here no matter your age, would look at your children or anyone's child and say to them, do that. Follow those guidelines. Make those decisions. You would never say that that is a transcript or there's a textbook for how to enter into life and to make wise decisions and to get along well and to do well for yourself and your family. This is really not that picture at all. It is abuse and poverty and violence and addiction, and escapism, and teenage pregnancy, and the fear, and the emotion, and the fighting, and the immaturity, and all that comes along with the chaos and the struggle of all of that. Now, maybe your family doesn't look like that. Maybe your family looks wonderful. And if so, praise God. I pray that you're blessed. Maybe your family picture looks a whole lot worse than what I've just described in the last few minutes. I bet you there are stories in this room that honestly, you just couldn't say. You just wouldn't say the story and would be very, very hard to hear. This is the family that I was born into and it's a mess. If you're here today and you feel like you're a mess or your family's a mess, I wanna to say to you that it's okay not to be okay. In fact, you're in good company. This is the best place for you to be, to say, God, I need your help. The Pharisees cannot believe that Jesus is spending time with sinners. In fact, specifically, he's at a party. 
I don't think it's too much for us to say that they were laughing, that they were drinking and eating and telling stories and getting to know each other and having a good time. And there's a knock on the door and here are these Pharisees and they are disgusted. What kind of rabbi is this? Doesn't he know who they are? There's no rabbi who would ever, ever be in the company of such unclean people because we are holy people. And if he's, a, if he's a rabbi, he's supposed to be like us. He should really come away from people like that. Look at Christ's answer in this situation, Luke chapter 5. Why do you eat and drink with such scum? Jesus answered them. Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call those, not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. Can I ask you, is there anybody here who knows that they're a sinner? I have no problem putting up both hands and a leg. If you ever touch another drop, you'll never see these boys again. And incredibly, he never drank again. Now, here's where our story changes. And I really only have one thing to say to you today. And that is, the direction of your family and the trajectory that you're headed in can be completely changed. Watch what happens. A significant encounter. One night, I'm going to guess, my mother was maybe in her early 20s. She was by herself in her bedroom. And all I can tell you is that she cried out to God. Is it no wonder that she did when you think about her life? Have you ever prayed a prayer something like this? If you're real, if there's anybody listening to me, if there's any truth to any of this stuff, God, I need you to show up in my life right now. And here's what happened. The power of God flooded that little bedroom in a house on the outskirts of Dublin. There was no preacher. There was no church. She didn't own a Bible. There was no one to explain anything to her. It was just God answering, and He can do that if He wants. And here's what's happened. The presence and the power of God filled that bedroom, wave after wave after wave of his love. She was so overwhelmed by the presence of God that she could not bear, not for another moment, the increase of his glory. It was the furnace of his radiance coming upon her. It was so intense, so real, so overwhelming that she actually cried out, Stop it, God, you're frightening me. And from that moment on, her life was never the same again. She had encountered the living God. The next day she got up, she went down to the local school, and she went into the nuns, and she said, are you having assembly today? And the nuns said, yes, we are. She said, great, I want to talk to the students. <laughs> and for reasons that I don't understand, they let her. <laughs> I don't think my mother had ever heard a sermon ever before in her life, ever. What we're doing right now, she'd never been exposed to that. She stood up in front of the entire school. She didn't know much about the Bible. She didn't know much about God, but she knew that Jesus loved her. And so she told the children, the students, these teenagers, that Jesus loved them. The Holy Spirit was on her with power. Some of my earliest memories are 
growing up in this little matchbox of a house in a place called Cholester in Dublin, where I grew up, and it was just brimming with teenagers from the school, like up the staircase, coming out the doors, and nobody knew what they were doing. Nobody preached. We didn't own a Bible. I was a tiny child. I can remember this. There was a, somebody with a guitar. I don't even know what the songs were. And they prayed and they worshipped and lives were transformed. My father came to Christ. They had another baby, my little sister. Amazing, amazing woman who now lives for God. My grandmother gave her life to Jesus on her deathbed. My mother was right there. Her husband, my grandfather, gave his life to Jesus on his deathbed. My mother was right beside him. You get on an elevator with my mother, you might be converted to Christianity. <laughs> my other grandparents had five girls. All of them came to Jesus Christ. This is the contagion of the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is household salvation. My other grandparents, my grandfather, so on my mother's side, is a very proud man, extremely intelligent man, and a very talented man, very charismatic man, loved attention. He was a staunch Catholic and went to Mass every single morning. He was a minister of the Eucharist, so he would help the priest hand out the body of Christ. Not everyone was allowed to do that. He would never come to a church like this. He knows all the answers. Very smart man. One day, our family encountered, I don't even know how we found it, an evangelical church. Something like this, but on a much, much smaller scale. And we started to go there, and we invited our grandfather our intelligent, charismatic, proud, arrogant grandfather. We couldn't believe he would actually come, and he did. And after the preacher had preached, he said, I'm going to have a time of prayer. Anyone who wants prayer, come up to the front. And there was a line of people. And unbelievably, my grandfather got up and got in the line for prayer. And we were standing back there like going, I can't believe he's doing this. And so there was a line of people. Of course, everyone wants to be prayed with from the guy who preached. And so there was a long line for that guy. And I don't know how to explain this. I'm going to wreck everybody's theology here, including my own. I have no explanation for this. None at all. But I'm going to tell you what I saw. He's standing in line, and he looks up the line, probably thinking to himself, how many people are in front of me before I get to be prayed with? At the exact same time, the preacher looked down the line, and maybe he was thinking the same thing. How many people do I have to pray with before I can go to lunch? I don't know. And as he looked down the line, and my grandfather looked down the line, they caught each other's eye. And this is a wreck your theology right now. My, uh, the preacher looked at my grandfather, and he did this to him. He just did that, just like that with his hand. And my grandfather was picked up off his feet and was flown back across the room and crashed into a pile of chairs. He had an encounter with Jesus Christ, and what emerged from his, from his life after that was a prophetic ministry that I've never seen before or since. I have no explanation for that. The Holy Spirit was on him with power. At the age of 14, I started to go to this evangelical church in the city center. I went to the youth group, and I loved it. And we'd play sports, and at the end, there'd always be somebody who'd open up the Bible and read a few verses, and we'd sing some songs. And my friends were there, my mates were there, and we'd play football together. We'd have a great time. I began to notice something different about my friends. 
they were really paying attention. They began to pray. I was like, you guys are praying? I would never pray. I would not do that. What happened to me is I got into this habit where somebody bought me a Bible, probably my parents. And I would pick up the Bible on a Sunday, wipe the dust off it, and bring it into church with me. At the age of 14, probably like a lot of young lads, I had a tremendously difficult time reading. Now, it wasn't that I couldn't read, it was that I couldn't focus. I think there's a lot of boys, probably some girls too, but a lot of boys seem to have a hard time with that. And I remember in my English class, I was 14 years of age, I had to read this book right here. This book is called Of Mice and Men. It's kind of a classic little piece of English literature. It has 107 pages in it. It's a little book. I couldn't read the book. I remember going to my parents saying, Mom, I read the paragraph. I don't understand a word I read. So I went back and I read the paragraph, and I don't understand a word that I read. I can't understand this book. I just couldn't, com I couldn't comprehend the words. Some of you are teachers, and you know exactly what this is all about. Meanwhile, we're going to church and going to this youth group. Sundays are coming and Sundays are going. And I'd pick up my Bible and I'd wipe the dust off it and I'd bring it to church with me. I'd sit in church. I'd come home. I'd stick it on the shelf. Sunday later, I'd wipe the dust off it. I'd bring it into church. And I began to go to this youth group where I saw my friends and they were worshiping Jesus and they were praying. I couldn't believe that they would pray. I was like, man, you're my friend, but you're praying out loud in front of other people. I'm like, I'm never doing that. I would never do that. But something very strange happened to me. I began to become envious. I have no idea where I am in my notes. It's going to be a different sermon today, amen? Uh, I began to become envious of my, of my friends because what I could see was God was doing something in their life that wasn't happening in my life at all. And I wanted that. I was hungry for that. There was something inside of me that actually was hungry for God. And one night I went to bed with my thick Bible that I wiped the dust off every week. And I prayed a prayer to God. Let me know if this sounds familiar. God, if you're there, if you're really there, if there's anybody listening to me, I need you to show up in my life. And I was actually angry. I was like, God, I can't read the Bible. I can't even read my English book that's 107 pages. I could read this today probably in one sitting. I can't read the book. How am I supposed to read this thing from all these languages that's really old? God, I want to understand this. Could you please come into my life? Amen. So I said, well, why don't I give this thing a try? I'm in bed late at night when I pray that prayer. Everyone else in the house is asleep. And I opened up the Bible. I didn't know anything about the Bible. I didn't know where to start. So I went to the first page. Right? That makes sense. So I opened up Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. I didn't even know Genesis was the first book in the Bible. And I began to read. And this is the sound that you could hear from my bedroom. Until about 3 o'clock in the morning. I just couldn't put the Bible down. Genesis. Exodus. I'm 14. Have you read Leviticus? <laughs> it's not an easy read. I couldn't put it down. I got, a notepad. I got a notepad and a pen. I'm like, oh. not only could I read it, but I could understand it. Not only could I read it and understand it, I could read it and understand it, and it actually meant something to me. And I couldn't put the Bible down. I read through 
All of the Pentateuch, I read through Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua and, and, uh, Joshua and Judges and Ruth and 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and 1 Kings and 2 Kings and 1 Chronicles. I read through half of the Old Testament and I couldn't stop reading the Bible. The Holy Spirit was on me in power. That's when I began to fall in love with music. There's a piano right over here. I fell in love with the piano. And I would sit at the piano for hours and hours and I would just begin to worship Jesus. And I began to figure out how to play the piano. I would just sit there. Sometimes my brother would grab the guitar and we would just sing. My sister would come in. Everyone in Ireland is musical, whether they are or not. They are musical. And we'd all, we'd sing. And I would just sit there for hours and just worship Jesus. And I just, I found Jesus worshiping Jesus for hours as this teenager. And then I began to write songs. I just, I was writing songs. And I was pulling things out of the Bible and I was putting them to music. Like, what's happening here? At the age of 17... I was asked to preach on a Sunday morning in church. Now, please don't think that's any big deal because it really wasn't because it was a tiny little church and they had nobody to preach. And so that's why they asked me to preach. And so I got up and I had never gotten up in front of anybody before. I'd never done any public speaking. I was so nervous. And then to top it all, it wasn't like I was talking about anything, but I had this, I felt the weight of like, I'm talking about the Bible. I'm, I'm going to talk about the Bible I don't get that. Why would I talk about the Bible? Why would I have anything to say about any of that, about God or His truth? And I was so nervous. And so I'm like, God, I have to prepare. So I opened up the Bible and I was led to Matthew chapter 27, which is the longest uh, recording of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And I began to read it and read it and read it. And I was studying and I was studying and I was, I was studying for hours and hours because I, partly because I was like, it's the Bible. Like, I better have my act together here. And I was so nervous and I'd never done anything like that before, ever in my life. And I got up there on a Sunday, and I'm not joking you, I wish there was a videotape of this thing. I don't know if I could stand up straight. I was, my knees were knocking. I was dying in the moment. And I got up there, and I said, we're going to read from Matthew chapter 27. I bet you I was mumbling, mumbling my way through. And I began to read through the chapter. And the Word of God had become so alive inside of me. It had become so embedded in my heart. It was so true what happened to Jesus Christ on the cross that I stood up there to preach. And I couldn't hardly get through it. I tried to just read from the Bible. And I just broke down into tears in front of the whole church. I just started crying. And I I put my head down right here. And I just went, in my brain, I said, Oh, Alan, you've messed it up. You've ruined it. You've blundered the whole thing. And you want to know what happened in that moment? The Holy Spirit just filled the church. I never really preached. It's the best sermon I never preached in my life. (laughs) 17 years of age. Do you see the trajectory of this family? Do you see the difference, the direction that it was headed in? It should never have gone in this direction. I had no idea what I was supposed to do with my life. I had no clue. (laughs) Not a clue. I went to college in Dublin. I'm like, I don't know what to do, so I'm going to go to college. And I got a degree in business studies because I didn't know what to get a degree. And I thought, that's a degree that probably goes to a bunch of stuff. So I went to college. So now I'm in my early 20s. I'm not, I'm not, and I did worship leading for years. I, I wasn't Mr. Worship Leader. I was not Mr. Pastor. Not at all. I'm just this kid who go in college. That's all. And one evening, I went and I visited another church in Pierce Street in Dublin, St. Mark's Church. And there was a little college group in there of about 20, 25 college kids. And I went up there, and, and I was just a guy sitting in a seat. And we'd had a bit of worship, and um, there was a guest speaker that night from America. And um, 
the worship was over, and the fellow who was in charge said, hey, why don't we take a few minutes, and it was like 20, 25 people in the room. He's like, get out of your chair and say hi to each other, shake a few hands. We have a guest. He'll be speaking in a few minutes. And so I said hello to a few people, and I sat back down in my seat, and I'm not joking you, all of a sudden, my heart started beating out of my chest, and I felt the Holy Spirit saying, Alan, go over to that piano. There's a piano in the room. I'd written this song and sing this song, and I'm like, no. I'm not doing that. I've never done that before. And my heart is like, I'm just thumping out of my chest. I was like, are you hearing this? Go over to that piano and play that song that you just wrote for me. I'm like, no, I meant it the first time. I'm not doing that. And in the Irish culture, like, excuse me, I've recently written a song that I'd like to share with you all today. Like, you do not do that in Ireland. You will get cut down pretty quick if you're going to, you know, do that kind of egotistical, big-headed stuff. You will get sliced. And, uh, and I'm like, I couldn't get rid of this thing. I did not want to do this. I wouldn't want to do this. I wouldn't want to get in front, in front of people and sing a song. What a vulnerable thing to do. I went up to the guy, and I just really gently said, I really have no clue where I am in my notes at all. Uh, I said to him, uh, I said, hey, do you mind if I sing this worship song before the guy gets up to speak? And it was 25 people in the room. He's like, yeah, go ahead. So I sat down at the piano and I, play, I sang this song. And then I got back down in my seat. I'm like, why did I do that? What was that? What was the point of that? Was that me? What, was that God? I have no idea. And the fellow got up and he was from Michigan. And uh, he got up and spoke. He was a Dutch... Uh, Michigander from the west side of the state. And uh, he worked in a church in Canton, Michigan. Uh, Ikea. And he stood up. <laughs> right? That's Canton. That's where Canton is. And he stood up and he preached. I don't even remember what he talked about. I have no idea. And afterwards, the meeting was over. And I'm still, like, bewildered. And we went downstairs for the mandatory cup of tea for everybody afterwards. And this six-foot-four guy looks at me, and he points his finger in my face. And I'm not joking. He says you're coming over to the United States. I want you to be a part of our worship program in our church. We have a discipleship program. We're going to pay for your flight. We're going to pay for your room and board. We're going to pay for the course. I want you to come over through for America for a year. I'm like, who is this Yankee? <laughs> like, flashing is, we got flights, we got money, we got things, we got... I mean, and I'm like, are you even serious? I had one year left of college to go, and he stayed in touch with me. I mean, this is pre-email. And so he stayed in touch with me, and he was dead serious. I finished college. I got on a plane. I said goodbye to my family. I didn't know anybody in the United States of America. I got off a plane, I, and this fellow picked me up. I was like, oh, yeah, I, I remember what you looked like. I didn't know anybody. And he drove me to Canton, Ikea, walked into this church, and I'm not even joking you, there was this woman standing right in front of me. Her name was Kelly Smith. And I looked at her and I went, God bless America. <laughs> like, we've been married for 22 years now. Praise God. Amen. That was the beginning of God's call to ministry on my life. 25 years later, I stand in front of you, and I have a million other stories of all that God has done. Now, I really hope that I don't come across today as bragging, and I really hope that I don't come across today as someone who just wants to share embarrassing things about his own family. 
That's not what I want. Maybe the temptation to say, well, do not just keep that private. I believe in the book of Revelations it says that the enemy will be defeated by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. And this is the word of my testimony. In fact, I am pretty convinced that Satan hates the fact that it would point to the goodness of God here today. Can I show you a picture of my family? This is a picture of my mom. She's a teenager. That's my big brother, Paul. And that's, she's standing outside the door of my grandparents' house. Um, I'd say she's 17 or 18, would be my best guess. What's going through her head? She's a lovely smile on her face because she's happy to be with her little boy. And she got to keep her little boy. Take a look at my dad. He's a good-looking fellow, isn't he? That's my big brother, Paul, and that's me uh, on your right. And we're camping. And he's making a cup of tea, and he's getting water out of a river. I remember that day. Uh, I think he'd stopped drinking by then. But you look at those pictures, and you would just say to yourself, this is not going to go well. Have a look at their wedding day here. These are, they're just kids. They're just children. And I'm sure they're thrilled in that moment. But they've done everything wrong. Like you would say, that's not going to end well. That's not going to go in the right direction. Take a look at the next picture. There's me and my little sister, my brother. That's our little house. We're in our garden there. Or, sorry, our lawn. That's what Americans call it. We're in our lawn. Um, you would just say, how is that going to work? Let's take a look at the next picture. I can't remember. One or two more, I think. Oh, something very different happening. There's two godly men on either side of my father. And he's telling the world, Jesus is now number one. One, more, one or two more pictures. Have a look at the next one there. There's me donning the classic 1990s goatee. <laughs> my big brother Paul. There's my dad Brian. There's my mom Carol. There's my brother's sister. She's from London. There's my wife Kelly. And that's my little sister Angela on the side. That's their... Uh, renewal of vows. And one last picture. That's my children. I have no way I'm getting through this sermon, guys. It shouldn't be this picture. It's supposed to look something entirely different. Church, I have a word for you. I have a word for your family. God says to you today, I know your whole life. I know the life story of your family. I know every hidden skeleton in your closet. I know every moment of sin and shame of your parents and you and your children. I know about your dishonesty and your degraded love that has darkened your past. And right now, I see you today with your, fallow, your shallow faith, with your feeble prayer life, with your inconsistent discipleship. And my word is this. I dare you to trust that I love you. I dare you to trust that I love your family. I dare you to trust that no matter the direction and the trajectory of your family, that I can take it in a whole different place. 
a whole different trajectory. I dare you to trust my grace for you and my love for your loved ones. The heart of a pastor would say to you today, whether you are well or not, whether you are single or married or newlyweds or married 20 years or 50 years, whether you have little kids or no kids or grown kids or grandkids, whether you are here by yourself or with your family, that you are before your father today. And he says to you today, I want you to encounter me and I want to pour my Holy Spirit out on your family. Today, I'm going to pray over your family. Today, I'm going to pray, even if you're here today, and maybe you're by yourself, that you would represent your family. Because I believe today, God is going to break generational curses. He's going to bring an abrupt end to addiction and abuse and spoken words and foul language that is going to all become halted. And in this place, He's going to bring in its place place in its stead. He's going to bring blessing and words of life and peace and joy and truth and courage and hope and healing to every one of you. My mom's name is Carol. And again, I'm so sorry for being so personal today. I don't usually do this when I preach. If you're here for the first time, I promise you this is unique. But the Spirit of God laid this before me to speak this into your life, into your lives. I found this letter in the drawer of my desk here at work, and I didn't even know it was there. I had completely forgotten about this letter. The letter, the letter was written to me on my birthday in the year 2004. 2004 is not my birthday, I wish it was. <laughs> it's a letter written for my birthday. I didn't even know it was there. I literally opened it up, and I'm like, what is this? And as I unfolded, I recognized the handwriting. It's a letter from my mom in 2004, wishing me happy birthday. Not a card, a letter. And I, I really didn't want to read this, but I really felt the Holy Spirit saying, I want you to read this letter. So I want you to read this letter because I want you to see, like, you look at this woman's life, you look at her husband, you look at this family, and you're just thinking, she should be, she should be something other than what she is. She should be embittered by the evil one. She should be para sort of powerless uh, from, I think, a deficit of love and affection in her home that she was trying to escape from, where there was violence and poverty and alcoholism and shame and the ostracization of, of teen pregnancy and poverty and a marriage that really the trajectory should have been that it, it would just be a, a wrecked marriage, a ruined marriage, a, a broken, divorced marriage that should have ended up with more violence and, and withdrawal of love and separation. That my brother's existence, he probably should have been just, let's get on a boat, we'll go over to England and let's just have an abortion. Let's be done with that. I look at their lives and I say, that ought to have been the trajectory of all of that. It should have been filled with anger and unforgiveness and hatred. That should have been my family. And instead, I want you to listen to the words written from a woman whose life was completely changed by Jesus Christ. This is the heart of a mother for her son. I pray you would listen to it as the heart of a pastor for you, this church. Dear Alan, I felt the Lord pressing on me to write this letter. Oh man, I'm never going to get through this. A letter for your birthday, it seemed good to him and it seemed good to me. Take a walk down memory lane with me to the day I first found out that I was pregnant with you. It was September, October of 1974. The evenings were getting darker and as your dad and I went home from the doctors grinning, we were so pleased and so looking forward to being together. I wasn't too sick. Some days were good, some not so good. On the not so good days... 
I went about with my teeth clenched, fighting the sickness. I had a craving for fruit, mostly apples. I think I knew from the beginning you were a boy, a friend for your brother Paul, somebody special. This is a mother's letter, my apologies. <laughs> we decided to have you at Mount Carmel Hospital because it was the best. That is so motherly, isn't it? We picked the best hospital. May of 1975, I woke up early in the morning feeling uncomfortable with contractions and your father scooped up Paul. We ran down the stairs. He wanted to put on a fry. Do you guys know what a fry is? It's about the unhealthiest way you could start your day. My father went down to the kitchen to make sausages and rashers and eggs and beans and potatoes in a big pan filled with, I mean, it's really, it's, it's not healthy for you. I told my father we wouldn't be having a fry that day. We had no phone, we had no car, so we popped Paul into his pram. Do you guys know what a pram is? P-R-A-M, a pram, like a, a stroller, right? We walked the mile to the bus stop and we waited 20 minutes. It left us at the end of Brookwood Avenue. I was scared getting on and off the bus that it would have a contraction, I wouldn't be able to move, but we managed. We walked up the, uh, Brookwood Avenue to my mom's house to get the Volkswagen but nobody could find the keys, so we called a taxi. The poor taxi driver was so nervous that I'd have you in the car, he kept making silly jokes, hoping the jokes would keep you in. <laughs> we arrived at record time at Mount Carmel Hospital. The doctor was delayed. It was a beautiful sunny day, and the midwife delivered you at half 12. You came out lying on your back instead of front ways, a small sign of the laid-back attitude to life that you would have. Long, beautiful hands. We wrapped you up, and eventually they gave us to you. We were crying with joy. We got you home. You were so tiny. Paul just loved you. He took good care of you, pulling you by the head any chance he got. <laughs> Such a happy little fellow, drinking your bottle, throwing them back up, not sleeping, laughing all the time. From tiny, you loved music. My mother is a phenomenal classical pianist. When you were there, when you were about three, I would put you in my lap and I played the piano and you just loved the sound. I remember at one point saying to my doctor that I was afraid of labor. The second time is the first time it had been so hard. He stopped his writing and he came around and he put his hand on my tummy and he said, this baby could be a pope. Who knows? Better he comes out. Well, I guess you are a kind of pope, binding and loosing on earth, building God's church, worshiping at the throne, teaching, preaching, encouraging, telling the good news, snatching souls out of the jaws of hell, watching and caring for the flock. Having you was one of the best things I ever did with my life. Watching you choose Jesus was one of the reasons my life was worthwhile. Every child you have brings different dimensions into your life. You'll always be my joy. I want you to always live your life. Not to be afraid or held back by anyone or anything. The enemy of your life will always be prowling about you. My mother, when she wrote this in 2004, would look at me through the lens of a worship leader because that's what I did for so many years. She said, the enemy will always be prowling around your life. After all, you're in the ministry that he was in. Your gentleness and kindness and love are very evident, but it's your heart before God that irritates the devil. Guard the treasure entrusted to you, that love that Jesus and you have for each other. So let me sign off this letter. Here's the scene. It's evening, and you decide to worship the king. Kelly's gone out, and you're alone. Well, there's a rustle in the heavens. Word quickly goes out one to another. It's the cloud of witnesses. It's the saints. There's such movement. 
such excitement. Michael and Gabriel are seen talking with the Lord and there are smiles and whispers. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. The temple is ablaze with his glory and for one moment there is silence and then you open up your mouth to sing, son, and as you sing and worship the God and Father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he throws back his head and he laughs and Jesus stands and he begins to dance and there is a roar as all All of the heavens and the hosts sing holy, holy, and they join in this sweet aroma as you touch the one who loves you. Son, I'm giving you my best scripture. God has never broken this promise. I'm proud of you and I love you. Church, would you stand as I read the word of God to you? As for me, this is my covenant for you, for your family. My spirit is on you, and he will not depart from you. And my words that I have put in your mouth will always be on your lips, and on the lips of your children, and on the lips of their descendants from this time on and forevermore. Amen.